So maybe I should have Pakistani robes, or uh, I could always just stand up here and teach like this. <laughs> I thought Bill did a great job the other night at uh, last minute's notice. So that was that was good, and um, I will say um, appreciate your prayers. Thankful for, for that. Um, I don't want to talk too much about about this thing. There are four things you're never supposed to talk about because they bore people. One of them is your health. The rest of them are money, your children or your grandchildren, or the help. The help, as we say here in Texas. So what are you supposed to talk about? Politics and religion. Maybe the weather, but yeah, that's uh, that's the basics of good etiquette and uh, good. Memory. Read anything written before the me generation of the baby boomers came along, and everybody understood that you don't talk about those things because most people really aren't interested. Like when somebody comes up and says, "How are you doing?" They don't really want to know how you were doing. It's just an idiom, a greeting, and the response is. Okay, unless, of course, like with somebody, we've got a couple of people nursing backgrounds in the church, and they say, well, what did they do? You know, then they want to know the gory details. But uh, I appreciate the prayers. I felt fine. Everybody says, well, how do you feel? I felt fine. Never had any any pain, any difficulty, just that because of the location, he didn't want me uh, talking too much because of uh, swelling and using those muscles and things like that. So he wanted me to ice it. 10 minutes out of every 30, I'm telling you, I am B-O-R-E-D. Because when you feel bad, you want to stay flat on your back and do nothing. But when you feel great, it's really bad. I watched more war movies and John Wayne movies and read more murder mysteries, along with getting caught up on a lot of other reading, but uh, I am very glad to be back in the pulpit, and it's good to uh, good to see everybody. I don't have know of any announcements other than Saturday morning. We're having a men's prayer breakfast at 7.30, and the deacons meeting is going to follow, so encourage men to come out. If they haven't come, this is an important thing for men in the church to get to know each other and um, to build uh, some relationships and to talk about different different uh, things spiritually as well as um, other issues in life. So those are important meetings to um, to to be be a part of. Uh, I don't, Alan. Are there any other other announcements other than the baptism? And I don't have a sheet. No, I don't have, oh, there's an announcement. I guess that's for Sunday. Pam's out of town, so um, Camp Arete, I think, is still looking for a uh, a camp counselor, and I have 98% through with an information sheet on the Washington, D.C. trip, and as soon as I get feedback from the editorial staff, we'll post it, hopefully by this time tomorrow. You can get all of the details and links and everything related to that. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, walking with the Spirit, and then um, uh, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that you are a God who not only created all things, but because you created all things because of your omniscience and your omnipotence, you know exactly how everything in life works. You oversee our lives, and sometimes you allow things to happen from your permissive will. Other ways you are directing us, and 
Father, above all, you have spoken to us through your word that we might know your will. Father, we're thankful that in times of difficulty, times of crisis, times of challenges, we can come to you and trust in you. And Father, we know that because you are the God who created everything, because you are omniscient, we know that you are the God who can declare the end from the beginning and that nothing is hidden from you. And because of that, when we look at scripture and we see predictive prophecy, that confirms to us the reality of you as the origin of the scripture. And Father, we pray as we study tonight, you'll help us to understand these things and our confidence will be strengthened. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We can go to all kinds of different websites today and television shows and all sorts of things. In fact, as I was getting ready to come tonight, I flipped on the television and it was on a channel, uh, the American Heroes channel. I know some of you watched that. And it was a show about how the world's going to end. And they were making all of these predictions and prognostications about Oh, it was going to be this way or that way. Is it going to be as a result of something that nature does? Or is it going to be a result of uh, some sort of biological uh, disease or virus that goes awry? Or is man going to create something and destroy himself? And I thought, well, none of you know the answer. You're just guessing. But we have a sure and certain word in the scriptures because God, who is the God of history and the God who created history and the God who is overseeing history, has told us exactly how history is going to come to an end. And none of those things are going to enter into it. And the problem with most predictions that we get from human beings is that they don't come true. And they motivate all kinds of fear and worry and anxiety and get you to invest your money in this thing or in that thing and secure this or secure that. And it never comes true. And even if there are people who, because of certain uh, sensitivities and the way they can read people and read nonverbal communication, appear to be uh, telling you things that they've never uh, never learned that are, are secret to you or things like that. It doesn't mean that they are seeing into your soul, reading your mind, or predicting the future. In fact, the scripture, though, does say that that can happen in some cases. So how are we to know if God is truly speaking, and how are we to know uh, if predictions about the future are true. Well, the Bible gives us a guideline, and that's where we're going to start uh, tonight. We're in the 13th lesson in the subtopic in First in, uh, Peter of giving an answer. And last week and this week and maybe the next two weeks, we're going. I want to run through in a quick survey fashion some key pieces of evidence that substantiate what the Bible claims about itself. And last time we looked at that, that the Bible claims not just to be a book about God, not just to be a good uh, reader, not just a good source of information about good things to do in life, but the very revelation from God himself through men to us that is without error. And as such, the Bible makes a number of claims about itself. And these, these claims can be uh, validated as we look both internally in terms of its internal consistency as well as externally. Did these things happen? Did these things come true? And that's especially so in this, in this particular area. On the Bible, I want to look at fulfill prophecy within the Bible. So the three basic questions that are most often asked by unbelievers and sometimes by Christians who just doubt, they, we all go through periods where we may question what we believe. Is it really true? Especially if you're young, if you're in high school, you're in college, you're a young person, and there's this peer pressure that how can you be a Christian? And then you hear all these things, usually 99% of them are distortions or completely false about Christianity, and uh, you come under that peer pressure. And the three 
key questions are, can we trust the Bible? Can you really believe the Bible? What's the basis for believing the Bible? God doesn't want us to just put our brains into neutral and just take an irrational leap of faith. Faith is not a leap. Every now and then I'll hear somebody say, well, you just take a leap of faith and believe God. If you understand, leap of faith is an existentialist term for going beyond the evidence in uh, contrast to the evidence. This is the idea that faith is believing something that's not true. And there are people who define faith that way. Faith is believing something that is not true. Um, That's not what faith is. Faith is believing on the basis of evidence that something is true. And so there's evidence that supports the biblical view. Second question, so we're looking at that last week and this week. The second question is, who is Jesus? Uh, What did he claim? Who did he claim he was? How do we know Jesus was who he claimed he was? And then the third question has to do with the uh, resurrection, which, as the Apostle Paul says, if the resurrection didn't happen, then everything falls apart. That's the linchpin. Okay, so those are the three questions we're looking at. As we started this last time, I said the Bible claims to be God's revelation of himself to man. That is either true or false. If it is false, then we just dismiss the Bible. It's no better than any other book. If it's false, then with the claims that it makes to be the only true source of information about the only true creator, God, who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, then it is fraud and it is deceptive. In fact, it's not even a good book. It's an evil book. But if it is true, it is the unique book of the, his, of the universe And it should be valued above all other things. That's the application from this for believers. If the Bible is what it claims to be, then nothing is more important in terms of learning and studying and applying than the Bible. So we started off last time. I focused on these four issues related to the uniqueness of the Bible or understanding the, the, the Bible that first of all, it's a one-of-a-kind book. There's no other book like it. Second, uh, we looked at what the Bible claims about itself. Third, we looked at the testimony of archaeology, quoting uh, Dr. Nelson Gluck, uh, well-known, famous, now-dead archaeologist, Jewish rabbi, who said that he never discovered anything in archaeology that contradicted the Bible. And you can multiply those quotes. There's, there's lots of different archaeologists who have made that. Fourth is the thing we'll just cover tonight, and that's the testimony of fulfilled prophecy. Now, there's two types of fulfilled prophecy in the Scripture. There is fulfilled prophecy that happened during the life of the prophet or during the timing of the Old Testament that had to do with different events in history usually related to Israel. That's the first kind of prophecy. The second kind of prophecy was prophecy that was related to the coming of the Messiah, Messianic prophecy. I'm gonna, not going to get to that tonight because that's the first part that we'll get to next week when we talk about who Jesus was, who he claimed to be. So tonight we're looking at this whole idea of prophecies in the Bible and how the prophecies in the Bible are unique and confirm that the Bible is the Word of God. So as we start that, the first thing we have to understand is that the Bible clearly defines what prophecy is. It's foretelling or telling the future beforehand. It is like history, only in that it is written before the fact and not after the fact. It's not just generally true, but it is specifically true. And the Bible gave some specific tests in relation to prophecy and penalties for anyone who claimed to be a prophet, but whose prophecies did not come true 100% of the time. They couldn't be 99.5% of the time. They can't have, if they have a bad day, it's their last day. There's only one test for prophecy, and that's it. It's 100% true. 
So I want to repeat the basic presuppositions I talked about last time because when we approach evidence, the evidentialist thinks that the evidence is neutral. That's why when we looked at the film a couple of weeks ago, God's Not Dead, Part 1, and I asked certain questions on that worksheet, and that's, those are thought questions to teach you how to critically think about what you're reading, what you're listening to so that the questions related to methodology. This, some people have a bad, uh, bad view of apologetics because what they've been exposed to is poor methodology, so they react to the whole thing. But a right thing must be done a wrong way. I mean, a right thing must be done a right way. If a right way thing is done a wrong way, such as the rationalist approach to apologetics or the evidentialist approach to apologetics, then you're, you're, you're already causing problems with bad methodology. So we spend a lot of time talking about that. The presupposition is we never compromise our view of God that the Christian God is the creator of all things, including human beings, and, and their ability to communicate and to understand his communication to them. That's fundamental. Not just thinking God created us, but get, let's get more specific. God created every human being, and he created them with everything necessary to receive his communication and to fully comprehend his communication. It's not guesswork. God's not playing a shell game with us. Second, that the Bible assumes his existence and claims that it, uh, that is, a scripture preserves and expresses God's communication to mankind. It makes specific claims, and those claims can be evaluated. Third, we see that the Bible is internally consistent with, with its claims to be the revelation from God, and no evidence has ever surfaced which contradicts that particular claim. Now, when you look at what the Scripture says about prophecy, fulfilled prophecy is evidence of the veracity of Scripture. And God uses it that way. It's, and he does this in Isaiah. It tells something about who he is. In Isaiah 46, 9, the Lord says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other, I am God, and there is none like me. By the way, that's the definition of being holy, being unique. It's not the idea of being moral or being pure or being righteous or being just. It's that idea of being unique or distinct. God says there's none like me. I am unique in my knowledge. I'm unique in my righteousness. I'm unique in my omniscience, my omnipresence, my omnipotence, my veracity. I'm unique. There's none like me. And how is, what is he distinguishing here? His omniscience. That means he knows all the knowable, including all the future. He declares the end from the beginning. Because of his omniscience, because he is timeless, he sees all of human history before him as an eternal present, and he can... Uh, state exactly what will and will not take place in what appears to be our future. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. There are prophecies given in the old days that have yet to be fulfilled. And he says, my counsel shall stand and I will do my pleasure. So prophecy and the fulfillment of that prophecy is evidence of the uniqueness, the holiness of God. Now, one of the tests for prophecy is given in Deuteronomy chapter 13. Always remember this, Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18. If you can think about those two chapters, that's key. You don't have to remember the specific verses. You can always remember those. I remember in senior theology with Dr. Ryrie, where he would drill us, he would just go down the line and he would call on Mr. So-and-so, Mr. So-and-so, okay, Mr. Dean, stand up. And what, what was described in footnote 15 on page 35 in the chapter you were assigned to, and uh, please tell me if he was correct or incorrect and why. Defend your answer. And then he'd go to the next person and he would say, okay, what scripture did he leave out? 
And you'd have to come up with that off the top of your head. And if you just had chapter, I mean, uh, book and chapter, you were okay. So those were the kinds of tests that we would we would be given. So you're, you're drilled. Uh, Dr. Waltke used to, if footnotes had footnotes, that's where he would ask his quiz questions. You had to know everything. But 13, Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18, that... Those are the two key chapters. Now, in Deuteronomy 13, God says, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder. Now, notice the text doesn't say he gives you a false miracle or a false sign or a false wonder, or he just makes up something that's going to happen in the future. He says, If there arises somebody who's a dreamer of dreams or a prophet, and he makes a prophecy, and the sign of the wonder comes to pass. It really happens. He's not saying, like you and I have frequently said, somebody says, oh, so-and-so predicted the future. Oh, no, they didn't. They're just good guessers. God says there are going to be counterfeit miracles, signs. The Antichrist is going to have these kind of counterfeit signs in when he appears in the tribulation period. This is how you know the difference. If their message contradicts my message. See, the ultimate standard of truth isn't somebody performing a miracle, isn't somebody giving a sign. The test that they're from God is their message, the content of their message. If this, if this false prophet comes along and he makes a prophecy and it comes to pass, and then he says, let's go after other gods. In other words, let's go worship other gods. Let's go worship uh, um, the Hindu gods. Let's go worship uh, the gods of the Greeks or the gods of the Romans. And let's serve them. What does God say? He says, you shall not listen to his words. The issue is if the content of his message is wrong, he may have a great personality. He may be a wonderful communicator. He may have a church that has 5,000, 10,000 people and be shown on television screens and computers around the world. But if his message isn't the biblical message, notice I didn't say consistent. If it consistent, just it, a lot of people can say things that are consistent with the Bible, but their framework is totally false. To be biblical means it derives itself from the Bible and is supported by the Bible. Don't get caught up in this trap that, oh, well, what they said is consistent with the Bible. There are a lot of things in Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness that are consistent with the Bible. There are a lot of things that in Satan's worldview that are consistent with the Bible. Because to, to have any selling power, it has to be consistent with reality to some degree. It, to be biblical means it comes from the Bible. And the Bible says, the Torah said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall worship no other gods. So if this false prophet comes along, even if he has miracles, and says, let's worship other gods, you know that he's a false prophet because of his message, not because of whether or not it came true. That's so hard to get across to people. Verse 3 says, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That's why God allows these false prophets to come along and these false pastors and these pastors who teach bad theology and teach legalism and all of these other things. God allows that to test people to see if they're going to be true to the, to the Bible and the God of the Bible or if they just want to go after uh, things that uh, uh, make them feel good, things that entertain them. And if you go on to read in Deuteronomy 13, the penalty for someone who is a false prophet is death because God is not going to allow a spiritual malignancy to lead his people away from himself. Okay, so the standard is conformity to God's word. Second, in Deuteronomy 18.20, we have our second test. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. 
That's the death penalty. God doesn't put up with somebody coming along saying, I speak for God when they don't. And he says, and if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? You know, in other words, you come along and say, well, so-and-so says they speak for God, and so does so-and-so, and all these other people. How do we know who's true and who's not? And that's a legitimate question, because there are people who come out and claim all kinds of things. Joseph Smith says that God gave him a revelation of the Book of Mormon. Muhammad comes along and says God gave him a, a, a revelation, and it's the Quran. And there's all kinds of other people. Mary Glover Patterson Eddy came along and said her book on science and the scripture is is from God. How do you know? There are all kinds of people who make this claim. He says in verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. The test for biblical prophecy is that it comes true. So if this is the claim of the Bible, that the Bible is the word of God, and the Bible comes from God, then when there are prophetic things that are given in the scripture, we can see that, and it gives us validation, verification of the claims of the Bible. Now, not all prophecies can be uh, validated in that way because many of them have not yet come to pass. They were spoken, as Isaiah uh, 46 said, spoken in ancient times, and they've not yet come to pass. That's why many of the prophets gave uh, foretold of events that would happen in the near or immediate future so that that would then validate their claims, their prophecies that were, would not be fulfilled for centuries or, or many, many centuries. Isaiah 41, uh, 21 and 22, to, or actually 21 to 23, God says, challenging those who... Uh, are uh, who reject him said bring forth your strong reasons says the king of Jacob present your case says the Lord bring forth your strong reasons says the king of Jacob that is another term for Yahweh the king of Israel verse 22 let them bring forth and show us what will happen you claim to be speaking for God if you do Let's see if you can tell us what will happen in the future. Show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them. Let it tell us about what happened, but also where it's going to go, the latter end. Or declare to us the things to come. So God lays this down. Fulfilled prophecy is a validation and verification of a genuine prophecy and that something actually derives from, from him. Isaiah forty one twenty three. show the things that are come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. Yes, do good and do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. So what I want to do is look at three different examples from the Old Testament that you ought to have in your minds. They're pretty simple. A couple of these I've heard many, many times. I remember when I was in high school several times sitting in Bible classes, probably even going back before that when I was a camper at Camp Penile, at least hearing the, the story of the prophecy of Tyre, which is the second example. That's T-Y-R-E, not T-I-R-E. I tried to Google a good, uh, a good map of fishermen laying out their fishing nets on tire. I even spelled it right. I got a lot of pictures of Firestone and Goodyear and Michelin's and interesting. Okay, so the first is, we're going to look at this prophecy from the young prophet from Judah in 1 Kings chapter 13. So turn with me there. 1 Kings chapter 13. What you ought to do is mark these in your Bible. Mark, Take notes in your Bible so that when you're talking to somebody and you say, oh yeah, I've got this information, you at least know that you can get it if you look in your Bible. So the first one's going to be the young prophet from Judah. The second's going to be the prophecy about Tyre. And the third is going to be the prophecy about Nineveh. Those are Old Testament prophecies that were given in the Old Testament and that were fulfilled uh, also during the Old Testament time. And when we finish up with that, then next week we'll come back and look at the, what I think is the greatest of all the prophecies. We've covered it many, many times, and that's Daniel chapter 9 
as a prelude to looking at the at the messianic messianic prophecies. So remember this: biblical prophecy is a declaration of what will happen in the future, and it gives sufficient detail so as to exclude human generalizations. It's not just some well, this is going to happen. There's going to be a big financial problem next year. Well, that could mean anything. And there's too many people who get taken in by that kind of generalization. In the scripture, there are specific facts and details that are given that only God uh, would know. In fact, in this first prophecy uh, that I'm looking at, it's a prophecy that's given 300 years before its fulfillment, and it specifically names the king who will fulfill the prophecy, a king named Josiah. So that's a 300-year gap. Let me see. This is 2017. So if you go back to uh, 1717, uh, that would be when Jonathan Edwards was a very young man, uh, a young boy probably, then that would be like a prophecy given at that time, okay, 300 years earlier. Only it can only come true with those kind of specific. That'd be like somebody at that time saying, "Well, there's going to be a president named Donald John Trump, and he's going to be elected in 19 I mean, 2016." That's the kind of specificity this this prophecy has. So let's look at the background here. This is during the reign of a the first evil king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel split. They had a civil war. They had a tax civil war, tax-based civil war. And Jeroboam became the king of the north. Rehoboam, the son of uh, King Solomon, became the king in the south. Jeroboam understood a basic principle, and that is that he he wanted to have pure 100% loyalty from his subjects. Then he couldn't have them going to Judah to worship God at the temple in Jerusalem. So he set up alternate worship sites. And this is the story of what, what takes place at the end of uh, chapter 12, where he sets up a golden calf in Bethel in the south, not only about 11 or 12 miles north of Jerusalem. And he set up a second golden calf in the far north in an area uh, that was originally called... Um, uh, I think it was Laish, and this was became known as Dan, the territory of Dan. And so people were to come. So he is now at Bethel at this temple that he set up at Bethel, and they are worshiping these shrines. Now, this is leading the nation of Israel into idolatry, a violation of the first commandment that thou shalt have no other gods before me. And it's also an example of historical revisionism. This is, a, this is what happens when politicians start rewriting history in order to justify their position. And what Jeroboam did was he had them build this golden calf, like the golden calf that Aaron had had, had made while Moses was up on the mountain uh, getting the Ten Commandments. And Jeroboam says of this golden calf, the same thing Aaron said. He said, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. So he is attributing to this idol uh, everything related to Yahweh. It's not as bad as what came along later, but this becomes the archetypical sin in the northern kingdom. Almost every king, every king in the northern kingdom is apostate, and every king follows this. At the end of every king's reign in the north, it says, And this king did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Over and over and over again, there wasn't a single good king in the north. And so I think uh, uh, the other night when uh, Bill Katz was speaking, he, he mentioned that. So what happens is he's having this huge ceremony. Huge ceremony. Everybody's out there in their finest robes. Everybody is is dressed up. He's got the orchestra. He's got all the all his new priesthood out there, and everybody is lined up. And then what happens is this no name nobody, who is a prophet from Judah. So he's from the other country now. Uh, he comes in and he it, he crashes their party. And we're told in verse 1, Behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. Now notice that, by the word of the Lord. God is directing him. God appeared to him and said, Go take this message to Jeroboam. 
So he goes by the word of the Lord. Jeroboam is standing by the altar. He's right in the middle of the ceremony. And this is an extremely formal ceremony. It is like, uh, it would be like the time when, when the President of the United States is inaugurated and sworn into office and all of a sudden somebody just walks out of the crowd and interrupts the whole ceremony. He says he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord, again restating this, that this is the message from the Lord. And he said, O altar, altar, thus says Yahweh. Using the name Yahweh reinforces this is the God who gave the uh, Ten Commandments. Behold, a child Josiah by name shall be born to the house of David. Now what happened in the north? They rebelled against the house of David. Uh, Rehoboam was the son of Solomon, the grandson of David. Jeroboam is the son of Nebat. He's the son of, a, of nobody. He, he came out of the north. He's not related to the Davidic line at all. And he says, Behold, uh, 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 Josiah will be born to the house of David, and on you, that is, he's talking to the altar, he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who, sh- who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. Okay, let's look at what happens in the next verse. So it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, pointed at him and said, Arrest him. And right in front of his eyes, his hand just withered up. And it scared him to death. And the altar at that time was split open. See, this is the near fulfillment of that prophecy. The altar split apart. That validates, that's evidence that what this prophet is saying is true. The altar was also split apart, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Of course, this scares everything out of Jeroboam, and he pleads with him to heal his hand, which God in his grace does. But this is a prophecy that a king's going to come called Josiah in the future. We don't know when that's going to be. So turn from here to 2 Kings, from 1 Kings to 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings chapter 23. And here we see the fulfillment. Now what's happened in the fulfillment is that this is 300 years later. And in the north, they've had king after king after king. Under Ahaz, who married Jezebel, they went from... Uh, idolatry stage one to idolatry stage two. They've introduced the Baal worship and the worship of Melkart, who was, that's the name of the god uh, uh, in, uh, in, in Tyre. We're going to talk about Tyre in a minute. In Tyre, in Phoenicia, Melkart, M-L-Q, that K sound, is the counterpart to Moloch. Remember Moloch, he shows up earlier. He, that's the Moabite name for uh, Melkart. By the way, I read something interesting as I was studying about Tyre. Melkart is the Canaanite counterpart to Hercules. So Melkart is also worshipped by live animal, uh, live, excuse me, baby, infant, baby sacrifices. All of this is introduced into the northern kingdom by, by Jezebel and we cannot imagine how horrible life was in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom as a result of these idolatries. They would have huge, huge ceremonies, thousands of people coming out, bringing their babies to these idols that are shaped. They're made out of either iron or stone, and they're shaped with their hands out, and underneath is carved uh, a a nice uh, barbecue pit. And they've got a big fire chamber there, and they would uh, stoke it up, and then they would put their live infants in the arms of the God to placate the God for their sins. And this went on for hours after hours as they immolated these babies and that's just just the beginning of how horrible how pagan how reprobate uh, these cultures were we can't when when i read about this and think about this we are so blessed to live in this nation we are truly in a historical bubble if it were not for the impact of biblical judaism and biblical christianity 
that is how everything would be everywhere. But what has changed it is Judeo-Christian ethics. Judeo-Christianity is what has changed that, and Christianity is what introduced hospitals and orphanages and all of these things that have made life so much so much better better for us. But Josiah becomes king when he's eight years old, according to uh, chapter 22, verse 1. And when he is um, about 16 years old, uh, Hilkiah uh, discovers the high priest, discovers the, the law, the Torah. Nobody's known about it. It's been hidden away. Everybody's ignorant. You say, where's the Torah? Nobody knows. Nobody knew what it was. Everybody had forgotten. This has gone on for a couple of generations. And so he brings it to Josiah. Josiah reads it, and he comes under uh, true conviction from God and immediately repents in the biblical sense, changes his mind, so we've got to clean everything up, and he cleans all the idols, the Baalim and the Asherah that have been brought into the temple are all removed, everything is removed, and he starts cleansing the land from idolatry. That's the background, and he goes north. Uh, By this time, the northern kingdom has been destroyed. That happened in 722. This is around 615, 620. Uh, he is uh, maybe a little bit earlier, maybe 630, but the, it's 100 years after the northern kingdom has been destroyed, but they still have this, this, this center of worship at Bethel. And so he goes up there, and in chapter 23, verse 15, we read, uh, Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, had made both the altar and the high place he broke down, uh, made both the altar and the high place, comma. He broke down, that is, Josiah broke it down. Now, Josiah ruled from 640 to 609. So in 640, he came to the throne, he's eight years old, so this is uh, about 620, uh, approximately. And uh, he reigned for 31 years, and he destroys the altar. And we look at verse... Um, uh, 15, it says that um, both the altar and the high place he broke down and he burned the high place and crushed it to powder and burned the wooden image. And Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were there on the mountain and he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar. Notice the specificity, it's, his name is Josiah. He tears down the altar, he takes the bones out of the graves around that have been buried there and burns them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord, uh, which the man of God proclaimed. That goes back to, to first, first Kings 13, who proclaimed these words. So this is the fulfillment. Then he said, now whose gravestone is that that I see? Because that young man had uh, gone off and he had disobeyed God and had died and they buried him by the altar. Uh, and so Josiah says, well, whose grave is that? So the men of the city told him, it, it is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you've done against the altar of Bethel. And Josiah said, let him alone, let no one move his bones. So they left his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. So what we see here is a great example. Just think about this. The young prophet from Judah, he announces that uh, at some time in the future, this altar is going to be torn down. He addresses Jeroboam the first, says this altar is going to be torn down. Not only is it going to be torn down, which happened almost immediately, but eventually they are going to be, uh, burn uh, uh, dead men's bones on that altar, and it's going to be done by a man named Josiah. Almost 300 years later, this is precisely fulfilled. Josiah uh, destroys the altar, burns uh, the bones of those in the graves around there on the altar. It is precise. Second example that we can go to from the Old Testament is the prophecy against Tyre. Tyre is one of the two big, Tyre and Sidon are the two big cities in Phoenicia, which is uh, modern Babylon. And what you see here in this picture is uh, the uh, old island of Tyre, which is located right here, and it looks as if it is connected to the mainland, but it wasn't always connected 
to the mainland, the connecting of Tyre, the island, to the old city, which was on the mainland, is the story of this biblical prophecy. It was prophesied that that would happen, and that is exactly what happened. Now, in this map, we see the northern part of Israel. Here's Samaria in the south. This area up here is the area of Galilee, right here. This is the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Canaret. And over here where you see this little uh, bump in the coastline, that's where modern Haifa is located. Mount Carmel, where Elijah uh, met the priests of Baal, is located right there. And then you go north. Notice how close as Elijah challenged the priests of Baal. He's just south of their headquarters. Their headquarters is up here in Phoenicia, Tyre, and, and side, in fact, here's Zarephath in between, which is where Elijah hid out for a while. So this is the location of Tyre. Here's a 19th century map that gives you another look at the location of the modern uh, city, city of Tyre. And so what we see in the uh, announcement here is that Ezekiel is making this announcement. Uh, this takes place... Um, around 5, uh, 586, 590, and it is an announcement of what will take place uh, from Nebuchadnezzar. It is uh, the prophecy that is given by Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 26 is, um, is given before Jerusalem is destroyed in 586. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't attack Tyre. Nebuchadnezzar is part of that uh, prophecy. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't attack Tyre until he has subjugated and destroyed uh, Jerusalem. So that part of Ezekiel's prophecy, turn there with me to Ezekiel 26, that part of Ezekiel's prophecy would have been uh, a near fulfillment validation of his prophecy given to the people at uh, of his of his generation. So this is probably around 590-ish uh, when he makes this, uh, this prediction. And if you look at the beginning of the verse, we'll just look, read the first few verses, then it came to pass in the 11th month, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord uh, came to me, saying... And here we have it on the screen. Son of man, because Tyre has said against Jerusalem, Aha! She's broken, who was the gateway of the peoples. Now she's turned over to me. I shall be filled. She is laid waste. So what's going on here? Tyre looks down here and is gloating over a now destroyed Jerusalem. Now it hadn't happened yet. But Tyre, this is a prediction, Tyre's going to gloat over Jerusalem. They're going to rejoice. They're going to be like the uh, Palestinians and the Arabs who went out and danced in the street and celebrated when they heard about the uh, Twin Towers going down on 9-11. And for their gloating over the destruction of Jerusalem, God is going to uh, punish them. And this is the announcement of that, of that punishment. So the first part of this is going to come uh, within a couple of years, but it's an ongoing, as we'll see. This is a, a prophecy that focuses on numerous uh, attacks and, uh, uh, against Tyre. It says, Aha, she's broken. She who was the gateway of the peoples, that is talking about uh, Jerusalem. Verse 3, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will cause many nations to come up against you. As the sea causes its waves to come up. Now, you don't see too many great waves down at Galveston, but you can still get the point. Waves come in one after the other. And that's what this prophecy is talking about, is there's going to be, uh, over the next centuries, there's going to be wave after wave of conquerors that come, and each conqueror that comes down the coast is going to lay siege to you, and they're going to destroy another part of you until ultimately you are destroyed. So initially, it's not saying that this initial attack by Nebuchadnezzar is going to destroy you. It's simply saying that this is going to be the beginning. That's the first wave of, of many waves. 
And it's going to uh, be like the sea. Now, using the sea as a good analogy for Tyre, because Tyre was this, uh, the old city of Tyre is located on this map along the coast. But the uh, new city, the island city, is off the coast, or like Galveston is off the coast of uh, Texas here, uh, except it was uh, about 11 miles uh, for, uh, across from the mainland to the, uh, to the island. And so what happens is God goes on to describe this. He uses the sea and the ocean as the metaphor because these are a seagoing uh, people. He says, they shall destroy the walls of Tyre, that's the old city, break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. Now, this is a summary prophecy. Remember how I've told you many times how Hebrew narrative writes... First, you give the overview, and then you come in and spell out the details, just like Genesis 1 gives the overview of the seven days of creation. And then in, the, in chapter 2, uh, Moses comes back and gives you the details of the creation of man on the, on the sixth day. This is the overview. There are going to be these waves after wave after wave that are going to come. And what's going to happen in all those waves is they'll destroy the walls, they'll break down your towers, and it will get to the point where they will scrape off all the topsoil down to the rocks so that nothing is left of your glory. Everything that you see here is going to be taken down, nothing left but the tops of the bedrock. It shall be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken, says the Lord God, it shall become plunder for the nations." And in verse 6, he goes on to say, Also her daughter villages, which are in the field, shall be slain by the sword. The daughter villages are the suburbs, the satellite towns that, are, uh, that surrounded, uh, surrounded Tyre. So here is a map here on the upper left. About 700 to 800 meters is about, what, about uh, half a mile, maybe, uh, across from, what did I say, 11 miles, misspoke there, it's half a mile across the uh, uh, water. And what happened is when Alexander the Great came down from the north, first there's Nebuchadnezzar. After Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, he went back up and he is going to uh, wipe out Tyre. We'll get there in, uh, in just a minute. But then, that's in 586, it's an 11-year siege, but then in uh, the 4th century, around 330, somewhere in there, Alexander is going to come, and there's still some civilization over here because Nebuchadnezzar didn't wipe it all out, but it's at that time that he wants to lay siege to, the, to Tyre. Everybody, he surrounded them, laid a siege to Tyre, and the people started evacuating to the island. In order to get to the island, he had his men tear down the old city and start throwing all of the rubble uh, and all of the dirt into the waterway to build a causeway out to the island. And so in order to get enough dirt and enough rubble to fill it all in and to have a wide enough causeway to get there, they had to scrape the tops of the rocks so that nothing was left of the old city. Now, verse 7 goes back to a little more immediate fulfillment. It says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now, the liberal critics say, Nebuchadnezzar didn't come from the north. He came from Jerusalem, which is in the south. See, the Bible's wrong. But in, in a map, let me see. I don't think I put a map up here. We'll look at a, well, no. Um, if you think of the Fertile Crescent, nobody comes across the desert directly from Babylon or Nineveh to Jerusalem. They all came up towards Turkey and then down from the north. So all of the enemy, the Assyrians, later the Babylonians, later the Persians, all come from the north. That becomes the idiom for the invader, the evil invader always comes from the north, even if he may have bypassed you and he comes back. So that. Uh, is just uh, not not the way it should be uh, understood there. Nebuchadnezzar was from the north. There are passages in Jeremiah uh, that specifically speak of this attack of Nebuchadnezzar comes uh, comes from the north because that's how that's the direction that all the 
uh, enemies came from. So he's called the king of Bamblin, the king of kings, with horses, chariots, horsemen, army with many people. He will slay with the sword your daughter villages in the fields. All your suburbs will get wiped out. He'll heap up a siege mound against you, build a wall against you, and raise a defense against you. This is stage one. Liberal critics say, see, that isn't, you know, he didn't, Nebuchadnezzar didn't destroy it. Well, it doesn't say Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. It just says he laid siege to it and conquered it. And it goes on and describes that down through the next uh, several verses, down through verse 12. So what we learn from this is that the prophecy says that Nebuchadnezzar will destroy the city of Tyre, lay siege to it, and he will destroy the suburbs and environs. goes on to say that many other nations will come against Tyre, like waves. Third, that Tyre will become like the top of a flat rock, and that fishermen will spread their nets over the site and that Tyre will be thrown into the water and never be rebuilt. All of that came true. It didn't come true in one invasion, but he says there will be many nations that come against you. In an article written in Bible and Spade Journal that came out in 2006, they observed, first of all, the rubble from Tyre would be put into the sea. This was fulfilled in 332 B.C. by Alexander the Great's army, 250 years after uh, Ezekiel was written. Second, the passage does not state that Nebuchadnezzar would capture the island city and get its wealth. On the other hand, it does not say Nebuchadnezzar would not conquer Tyre at all. He conquered old Tyre. It simply states he did not get anything of value from it. This is exactly what Ezekiel 29.17 says. There's no contradiction. Third, the total destruction of Tyre would be accomplished gradually by one nation after another, and fourth, in the end, Tyre would be destroyed down to the bare rock and never rebuilt. The final destruction took place in A.D. 1291, 1,300 years after Christ. The initial prediction was given in about 588, 590, so roughly 600, so it's almost 1,900 years. Uh, from the prophecy to its fulfillment. Okay, third prophecy is in Nahum. So that's another one of those books. Y'all had had fun the other night going through uh, Jonah. And tonight we're going to look at, at Nahum. Nahum. Nahum is related to Jonah in that In Jonah, we see the grace of God who sent Jonah to the Gentiles to announce the gospel, and they turned to God, and God reprieved them for um, uh, well over 100 years. And in Nahum, we have the announcement of God's eventual judgment and destruction of, uh, of Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria at that time, the greatest empire uh, in the world. This is a modern map or modern country borders laid over a map of the, of the Middle East. Down here we have Jerusalem. This area is Syria. Here you can, if you can read it, it says Beirut. That's not too far from where Tyre and Sidon are located. Uh, here is uh, Iran alongside the Persian Gulf. And then just north of Iran you have... Um, Azerbaijan and Armenia and these other places. But right here where these border lines come, these lines represent different, the borders of different ancient empires. Right about there is is where uh, the modern Iraqi city of Mosul is located. And on that's, and then Nineveh was located across, uh, across the river from Mosul, ancient, ancient Nineveh. So here is an ancient map, as this was a map I was thinking about earlier. Uh, all of the invaders from the area of the Fertile Crescent, instead of crossing the desert here, which was almost impossible, they would go to the north and then swing down and invade uh, from the north. So they were always those northern invaders. That just uh, caps off what I was saying about Tyre. So this is where Nineveh was located. So what we see here is that Nahum wrote around 655 to 660 B.C. 
Now, you will read in some commentaries that, well, we really don't know when he wrote. It could have been much later. It could have been here. It could have been there. But he mentions the sack of Thebes. Thebes is in Egypt. In Nahum 3.8, he calls it Naaman. And he mentions the destruction of Thebes, which occurred, we can date that, in 663 B.C. So he had to have written this after 663 B.C. Thebes, though, is rebuilt nine years later in 654. Now, the statement that he makes in Nahum uh, 3.8 wouldn't make sense if Thebes had already been rebuilt. He makes a statement like, if you don't, uh, you're going to become like, like Thebes. If Thebes has been rebuilt, then the sentence wouldn't make any sense. So, it had to have been written between 663 and 664. Nineveh was destroyed in August of 612, which is at least 43 years later. So this kind of specificity is, is, shows the accuracy of biblical prophecy. So what we see, I'm going to look at about five things here that are predicted by, by Nahum. First of all, he predicts that the outer ring of fortresses would be easily destroyed, that um, there was a uh, large wall going around Nineveh to protect Nineveh, and he is saying that that wall is going to be uh, totally destroyed, and and then uh, then it would come down and the people would take it. In fact, if you read the verse, it says, all your strongholds, your fortifications, your defenses are fig trees with ripened figs. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, I grew up, my folks had a fig tree in the backyard. I don't know that we ever tried to do this, but uh, in the explanations of this figure, uh, when the fig tree is loaded with ripe figs, if it's shaken, the figs will easily fall off. They'll drop off. I don't think mine ever got that ripe because the birds would always get to them. But if you shake the tree, the, the figs will... And so this is an idiom for something that is easily accomplished. When it says your strongholds are fig trees, they're going to be easily knocked down. And so that's the, that's the prediction. And according to the Babylonian Chronicle, the fortified towns surrounding Nineveh began to fall in 614 B.C., and that included... Uh, Tabris, which is present-day Sharif Khan, which is a few miles northwest of Nineveh. So this is documented historically. Second, the Ninevites, Nahum predicted that the Ninevites would attempt to strengthen their fortifications by making bricks and mortar. We're going to reinforce the walls, we're going to make more bricks, and we need more mortar in order to do that. Nahum 3.14 says, draw your water for the siege. Fortify your strongholds, go into the clay, tread the mortar, make strong the brick kiln where you would dry dry the bricks. Okay? According to Olmsteads, this is the classic work. I remember Randy Price taking me through the Dallas Seminary bookstore the year before I started Dallas, and he would just walk down, and he says, you need this book, you need this book, you need this book. And I'm walking with this huge load of books, and little did I know he was creating an, a, a bibliophile and an addict at the time. And so this was one of those first books I bought and started to read, Olmsted's History of Assyria. It is a classic work on the history of Assyria. And he notes that archaeologists have discovered the ancient moat around Nineveh, and it was filled with fragments of stone and mud bricks from the walls, heaped up where the, they fell when the walls collapsed. A third prediction in Nahum is in Nahum 3.13, where Nahum predicted that the gates would be destroyed. Olmsted again reports that the, quote, the main attack was directed from the northwest and the brunt fell upon the Hatamti gate at, at this corner. Within the gate are traces of the counter wall raised by the inhabitants in the last extremity. In other words, as that, that gate collapsed, they tried to throw up a second wall to, of defense and that too was breached. So Nahum 3.13 says, 
Uh, Surely your people in your midst are women. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. Now that's the next point is that Nahum predicted that it would be destroyed by fire. And then the fifth point, he predicted that it would be destroyed by flood, uh, by both. Usually if you're going to predict somebody, you say, well, it's going to be destroyed by fire. And so both are included. So that's exactly what happened. In Nahum 1.10, Nahum 2.13, and Nahum 3.15, there's reference to fire. That it, Nehemiah, uh, excuse me, that uh, Nineveh would be devoured like stubbly, stubble, fully dried, that it's like tender. In Nahum 2.13, God says, I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. The lion was like the eagle is a symbol of America. The lion was a symbol of Assyria. I've seen the Assyrian lions from the lion gates there in the British Museum in London. Uh, Nahum 3.15, there the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. So Nahum predicted that the city would be destroyed by fire, and this is exactly what took place. Archaeological excavations have revealed charred, charred wood, charcoal, and ashes. According to um, Campbell Thompson and R.W. Hutchinson in their work, A Century of Exploration in Nineveh, which was published in 1929, they said there was no question about the clear traces of burning of the temple as also in the palace of Sennacherib. For a layer of ash about two inches thick lay clearly defined in places on the southeast side about the level of the Sargon pavement. So Nahum predicted it would be burned by fire. It was burned by fire. Also, it was flooded. There's a river that ran, uh, ran through Nineveh, and they broke the dam, and it flooded the city. Nahum 1.8, with an overflowing flood. Nahum 2.6, the gates of the rivers are open, and the palace is dissolved. Mud bricks don't do well in water. Nahum 2.8, uh, though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water. So all of these statements predicted a destruction by fire, a destruction uh, by flood, and all of this was specifically fulfilled. So what I've shown here is that the Bible claims that to validate a prophet, it has to come true 100%. That there would be false prophets but they would be punished by death, and they may even make some statements or claim some things that might come true. The way you would tell if it was a prophet from God is that their message was totally consistent. So we looked at three examples. The example of the young man, uh, the young prophet from Judah who announced judgment on uh, King Jeroboam I of the northern kingdom, and he said that the, the altar in front of him would be split, and it immediately split, and that eventually a king named Josiah would burn bones on that altar. That happened 300 years later by King Josiah. Second example we looked at was the prophecy against Tyre, and the prophecy was that Tyre, the old city, would be completely destroyed and scraped down to the bedrock, and that is what happened when Alexander the Great came along in 332 and built a causeway out to the island and then the third example we looked at was the prophecy from Nahum about the destruction of Nineveh that it would be destroyed by fire and by water a lot other specific details that were given so the Bible validates itself God uses signs and evidences to show that his word is true let's close in prayer Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to have our strength, our faith strengthened and encouraged by your word, understanding that you have declared the end from the beginning, nothing is hidden from you, and that you will work out your purposes in human history. Father, we pray that we might be able to internalize this information, make it part of our package of knowledge that we can use at necessary times as we are witnessing and talking to people about the Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.